I'm Heidi Bragg, and this is Life, Cancer, Etc. My goal with this podcast is to connect you with stories and resources that help you feel happier, more resilient, and less stressed, especially when you're going through hard times. Okay, today I'm talking with Dr. Andrew Broll. Dr. Broll is a clinician and a researcher at Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, and one of his specialties is sarcoma, which is the kind of tumor I had in my heart. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to see you. You too. You without a mask, too. It was interesting. I thought, what's weird? Oh, I can see his face. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't realize we'd be on a video chat. I, I would have shaved for you. I don't know. Sorry. It's, uh, oh, no. Working video doesn't it. show up. I only uh, post the audio. <laughs> good, good. Okay, so tell us a little bit about what you do at Moffitt. Sure. So I'm a medical oncologist, so I, I help deal with things like chemotherapy and other systemic therapies, um, and also a, a, a physician researcher. So I spend part of my time uh, seeing patients in the clinic and giving them advice about uh, their treatments, uh, and spend part of my time in the laboratory uh, trying to do some experiments and, and learn more about these cancers. And uh, I'm a, a, a rare cancer specialist, I, I would call myself, so I mostly take care of people who have uh, various types of sarcomas, which is obviously what you have. And, and um, also take care of people who have uh, another cancer called Merkel cell carcinoma, which is a, a rare skin cancer, and kind of help lead up the, uh, the efforts on that uh, at Moffitt as well. So that's kind of what I do. That's enough, I think. What, say again, sorry? Oh, I just said, I think that's enough. I think that's a pretty good, a pretty good amount of stuff to do in a day, don't you? Yeah, well, it's good. You know, it's a, uh, you know, you know, part of the reason I, I like this job and what I do is, is the variety from it. And part of the reason I even went into this in the first place was to, to be able to have that, uh, that balance and that variety to do the, the research as well as to care of people. Okay, we're having a little bit of audio problems, but we're going to work through it. Um, so tell me, tell me a little bit about why you got into this, because this is a very specialized field. So what, what drove that for you? Well, I, you know, I guess it depends on what, what part of the process, you know, you, you're, you're talking about, you know, there's a few different steps along the way before you kind of get into like sarcoma and research and even doctoring in the first place. But, you know, with, um, you know, I guess, um, you know, growing up, I didn't necessarily know I wanted to be a doctor, even I just was good at math and science and thought I would do something science related. And, um, you know, was actually, even even when I was late in college, wasn't really sure that I was going to be a doctor. And was kind of uh, vacillating between that and uh, like PhD school to be a you know more more or less a scientist. Um, and it, when I was looking at sort of like science things, I was even thinking more like a, along the lines of maybe like a physicist, you know, something like that's kind of you know way out there and not different uh, from you know you know taking care of patients, but. You know, you know, ultimately, I kind of got got drawn into the idea of doing something that's a little bit more uh, tangible and, and maybe more relevant. You know, I thought could, could get yeah. you know a little bit more like esoteric if I went the other way, um, and, and you know, also had a little bit more of a clear um, you know career path going that way. You know, it was kind of like easier to see what I would actually do uh, moving forward. And you know, I guess even if the research part didn't fully work out, you'd still have this you know great opportunity, great career, taking care of people and being a, a doctor and could do clinical research. And so it seemed a little bit more flexible there and, um, you know, kind of worked out for me that I'm still able to do the, the science part of it to, to a great degree, like I like to. Um, so that, that's kind of what drew me into to medicine in the first place. And then, 
you know, for sarcoma more specifically, I, you know, I kind of got into it mostly through the research side, you know, basically what had a mentor during my training that, that was researching sarcoma. And then, you know, I got into that through, through that. And, you know, once, once I started doing it um, a little bit more, I, I sort of appreciated the, um, the, the need for it in a rare cancer. You know, they, there's always this, you know, uh, problem that, you know, rare cancers are kind of difficult to research and, and difficult to take care of because there's, but, in, and more people are needed to do it, even though, you know, you would think you need to put more emphasis on the more common things. It's just, it's underrepresented in research. It's underrepresented in, you know, sort of specialists in it. And so I think there's a real need for it. And there's also a sort of a scientific interest part of it too, um, where there's, you know, a lot of examples in, in cancer research and, and cancer medicine where we learn a great deal by studying the rare things. You know, there's, there's, you know, a great example is a, you know, a, a cancer called retinoblastoma. It's a cancer that children get or, you know, young, young children get in their eye. Uh, and it was one of the first cancers that was discovered to be hereditable. And the gene that was, you know, kind of discovered out of it, which is now called the retinoblastoma gene, uh, is, you know, pretty commonly affected in a lot of other common cancers too. You know, if you look at all cancers everywhere, breast cancers, lung cancers, sarcomas, you know, about 10% of cancers have a defect in this gene also. And so we, we kind of learned a lot about the genetics of cancer through this rare childhood tumor being studied. Uh, and there's, there, you know, so there's a number of examples like that. And, you know, my whole shtick or, or, you know, or spiel when I'm trying to, you know, ask the government for money to fund my research is that, you know, if I, if I study this super rare thing that nobody is looking at, maybe, maybe I'll learn something like that too, that, that doesn't just affect a few people, but kind of, kind of is, you know, some sort of breakthrough or, you know, yeah. it's like to other things. A lot more universal than maybe they would expect. Yeah. So I think that's, that's, that's sort of what I like about it. And so it's like this need thing. So you really, you know, what, you know, it's, it's, you know, people are coming and, you know, it's hard to find researchers for some types of sarcomas, even if you're, you know, for people who are diagnosed with this and looking for like an expert, I've, you know, come across some that it's really even hard to find like the go-to person in the world for it, you know, for, for some of these, uh, you know, ultra rare ones. And so it really, I think is kind of a need uh, as well. And, and, um, you know, yeah, amen to that. It's, it's been a good, you know, fit for me, I guess, and rewarding, you know, to, to do that. Well, and okay, so I'll describe a little bit about the first time you and I met, and then I'd like to hear about that encounter from your perspective. So sure, we had met with um, my regular oncologist who kindly, but pretty um, clearly stated that, so we come in, I'd had open heart surgery. They figured out that the tumor was not a benign myxoma like they thought it was, that it was this sarcoma. And did we ever figure out if it was undifferentiated or angiosarcoma? Do we know? You know, I think we're, we're calling it undifferentiated sarcoma at this point. You know, it's been called both by the pathologists in different time points. And, um, you know, the, and the angiosarcoma is, you know, one of the ones that can affect the heart. It's a, it's a tumor that comes from the, the lining of the blood vessels and, or the heart itself. And so location wise would make sense, but, um, I, you know, I think it ultimately lacks some of the markers that we would tend to find on angiosarcoma. So it's been, I, I think probably more. Uh, appropriately classified as just an undifferentiated sarcoma, which is somewhat of a catch-all term. You know, it, it, it's one yeah. we, we, we don't, you know, we don't find any of the more specific markers to lead you down to a different sarcoma type. 
um, and you know, you know, it lacks you know, like the, the markers for angiosarcoma or liposarcoma or lama or these other things. And, but it turns out that a lot of sarcomas are, are, you know, fit into that category. So it's actually one of the bigger categories of sarcoma that we end up, you know, classifying things as, but, okay. but ultimately that's what, what yours is. Okay. So I walk in there and, and my other oncologist has said, you know, this is basically odds are this, I, I'm like, is this something we can treat? Or she's like, you can probably buy some time. But mm-hmm. sarcomas are very aggressive and they usually come back, as you told me, within mm-hmm. usually six to eight months. Mm-hmm. So Kevin and I walk in and we're talking with um, the resident, Dr. Risk, and mm-hmm. she's talking to us about this. And then um, you walk in the room and you say, you give us basically the same outline, but you're like, but there's this little window, mm-hmm. like there's this little window. If you can hit it. Mm-hmm. It works, but you have to be really aggressive and the odds are not great. So just know that going in. And I'm like, what are the odds? And Kev always laughs at me because he's like, he gave you a number because you kept pushing him to give you a number. I'm like, what are the odds? And he's like, "Uh, 5%. Well, first you hemmed and hawed for quite a while because you're like, I'm not giving you odds. And they're like, fine, 5%. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember so what, you really pushed me on that one. Yeah, we we hate giving people numbers because we're you know it's so uh you know I, I don't know it's a, it's a tough balance. You want to you know not be uh, giving somebody false expectations or you know unrealistic expectations, but also not like kind of completely crush them and you know you know crush all right. hope. And you know especially in the medical oncology field, so you know we're the people who deal with chemotherapy and you know in some cases now immunotherapies, which is a, you know kind of an emerging thing for uh, cancer treatment for some types. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're typically giving those types of things to people who have either, you know, the bad ones, the ones that are already at an advanced stage or ones that are really high risk to come back. So, you know, we're not we're not really seeing patients that are have like the, the easy cancers that, that a surgeon takes out and, and it's kind of like end of story. We're, we're typically in, in my field seeing people who have a, a tougher one that, that may need chemotherapy or something like that. And so, you know, a big part of our initial meetings with, with anybody when when I first meet somebody is really sort of expectation management and, uh, you know, the, and, and trying to balance, um, you know, hope with, without giving false hope, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, that's sort of the, the, the needle that I'm trying to thread frequently, you know, often it's, um, I, you know, in your case, I think you were actually pretty well prepared for our conversation. And, and thankfully, you know, the previous oncologist who spoke with you was, uh, you know, fairly upfront with you, but, you know, oftentimes it's actually, the most difficult part is getting that initial. Um, Hang on, your audio cut out. So you said oftentimes okay. the most what? Oftentimes the most difficult is is getting the, um, you know, getting through that initial, you know, blunt, getting hit over the head with a, you know, a two by four that it, how, of how bad it is because you know it's it's difficult to tell people you know how you know <laughs> you know bad news and uh, so. Uh, you know, I'd say the more difficult time is when people have come and seen an oncologist or two already and, and had no idea, like, how, how bad it really is. And so you're kind of, you know, hitting them over the head with that at your first meeting. And, you know, nobody's been kind of, you know, brave enough to step up to the plate and kind of say that to them in the past, you know. Yeah, you know, I can understand because that is maybe, you know, it's draining on you to do that. And perhaps if you're not, you know, an expert in the field, you might, you know, you might not feel comfortable saying something if you're not really entirely sure about it either so but we do you know get a fair amount of people who come in who just have no idea 
you know, how, how bad it is, or, you know, some, you know, in some cases, if it's not curable, you know, that's, you know, you know, that's even in some cases where that's kind of obvious by the way that it, it looks or, you know, how, how advanced it is. And, uh, and so that, that part can be pretty tough. Um, if, if, you know, if, if people are not well prepared for that, you know, it's, it's sort of like hit and miss. I mean, some people are like you pretty well prepared for that and some people not. Um, and so, yeah. And so in your case, it's more about the, the expectation management than afterwards and, and kind of, you know, wanting to motivate somebody to keep trying and fighting it and, and giving it the best shot, but without. We lost Dr. Broll's audio for a minute during the interview, but what he was saying was giving people hope, but also giving them realistic chances and odds for survival and outcomes is really important. So what are, what are some of the things besides the reality of their situation that you wish patients um, knew when they came in that would help them have a better working relationship with you as a provider? Well, I think I, you know, I appreciate when people come in with, uh, you know, some, some degree of ownership about their, their care and taking some initiative on their own to, to sort of try to figure out on their own what to, at least to some degree, you know, what, what they're dealing with and what's been found so far, you know, I, this, this certainly applied to you, you know, coming in and wanting to know all the details and, you know, kind of knowing all of your radiology results and, you know, so forth and pathology, what you've been told so far, and, um, you know, asking for extensive detail, I think, from your previous doctors as much as they would give you. Uh, you know, but some, some people come in and don't don't really, you know, are kind of a little bit clueless about what's even been found, you know, whether there's multiple tumors, not just one, you know, what's what's seen on my radiology, what is this even being called? You know, some people are just told what, you know, and I think, I don't know if it's the follow of the patient or the people who've seen them before that, that get them to us. You know, some people will come in kind of clueless, you know, just like, hey, go to go to the go to MOF and go to the referral center and kind of they'll tell you all you need to know. And so I, I kind of I kind of like it a little better when people are a little bit more prepared uh, and, and sort of ready to have, a, you know, a, a more working relationship with me and, and you know, sort of ha- have more of an understanding and uh, some thoughts on their own about, um, you know, what what you know, what, what kind of the options might be that we're talking about and having some questions prepared, you know, about what to, to ask. So I, I, I kind of like a little bit of preparedness, you know, there, there's probably a degree where it gets too much, a little bit too much of like the, you know, Google MD, you know, like, mm, you know, yeah, yeah. Research, researching everything, which of course, you know, every doctor complains about and, you know, you know, a little, a little knowledge is a dangerous sort of thing, but, um, but to some degree, at least being aware of their, the, the main details of, you know, kind of like their case and what, what's been found in some of the uh, more, at least main tri- mainstream expectations and so forth, I think it's pretty helpful. And so that people have been thoughtful about it and also kind of know what, um, what they might be in for and what, what they might be willing to do or not do. I mean, there's some people that, you know, start talking about chemotherapy, for example, they didn't they really, really consider the possibility. It's kind of like ignore that that could be a possibility and, you know, haven't thought about whether that's something they would want to consider or not. Um, so, you know, that's uh, sort of the degree of things I, I wish people would come in with when I, when I first meet them. Well, cause I think of you as the, you guys at Moffitt are like the, okay, what are my options and what should we do now guys, people, whereas the other people are the, well, what the heck is going on? I, I just like when I met with my, when my cardiologist, my cardiothoracic surgeon, my original oncologist, they helped lay out the picture about what was going on, you mm-hmm. know, what the, what the tumor looked like, 
how the resection went, that we had one area that didn't have clear margins. Then when I met with Anna, it was, what are the expectations? Here's how sarcoma normally behaves. So that when I got to you guys, it was like, okay, I know all this stuff about what's going on. What do I do now? What are my options? I I, I feel like to go to a research center without any understanding of your case is you're doing yourself a disservice. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great way to put it, though. What, the what's going on questions, the quicker you can get past that, you know, and into the, you know, what are the options, I think the better, you know, your time is spent with uh, with us and, you know, and the better I can sort of talk about that, that sort of a level, that layer. So, yeah, I, I think getting past that initial layer is is, is definitely ideal and, or better, you know, for, for the initial meeting when, I, when I'm seeing people in my clinic. So... Um... Anything else on that on that question? Anything else you wish people knew before they got into that room? You know, I think I think that's that pretty well covers it. I mean, we, we spoke about to some degree expectations as well, and having a, a little bit of a uh, at least a ballpark sense of the expectations is, is helpful. I don't need people to come in, you know, knowing that their their odds are five point two percent or something like that. But I but I do I do want people to know whether it is we're talking about something that is probably curable or probably not, uh, or definitely not curable, uh, or, you know, just some of it, some really kind of ballpark expectations, I think are pretty helpful uh, and often are provided, but not always. And so, you know, again, it's just, it's just hard to have a, it's hard to have a conversation that's a working conversation about what, what are the options if, until you get over some of these initial shocks, you know, it's just mm-hmm. like the, you know, the stages of grief almost, it's hard to get past denial, you know, uh, you have to, and so, um, you know, get, getting some of those initial things out of the way, let's say, uh, you know, to get to this, all right, all right, let's, what, what's going to, what are we actually going to do now? What are the options? You know, how, how are we going to do this? Is it's, it's helpful to be able to get to that point if, if you've already had some of these initial, let's say, things out of the way, but just the, like you said, the overview and the, and the expectations to some degree. That makes sense. And then, um, we had some audio issues, so I'm not sure if this is repetitive, but, um, when I asked Dr. Bull and he said, um, I asked him if this was worth even doing the chemo and the radiation, because if this was just going to kill me anyway, why would I want to go through that before the, for the last few months of my life? And um, he said that there was this really small window, really small chance of a really great payoff. And that it was, you know, it was up to us if we wanted to do it, but that chance was there. And so we decided to take that chance and to do this um, this very aggressive radiation and pretty aggressive chemo as well for that chance, which I, yeah, 5% or whatever it was, 5.2. Thank you for the decimal point now. Um, That was a, that was a really, it was a, um, it was not a hard decision to make but it was a hard decision. And I'm trying to figure out what the distinction between those two statements is. Um, For me, because I love Kev, because I want to be around more because I love my kids and I want to be here longer. That was an, that was an easy decision to make. It's like, we'll take this shot and it may very well kill me. I don't, you know, it may, but I felt like I had to, to take that, that shot, but we still had to have all those conversations. And we had them primarily where our kids are, both our kids were at camp one week and we were driving back and forth to radiation every day. And it's about an hour and a half each way for us. If there isn't traffic mm-hmm. talking about, okay. And I'll start crying. Uh, 
So if I don't make it, then what? Um, and we had a friend who does end of life planning come while the kids were at camp again and -hmm. just kind of go through stuff with us. And he said, you know, we're just making a plan. We're not setting a date. And so we just kind of planned out what we wanted and what we didn't want. And Kev did it as well at the same time. And, um, those were really horrible conversations to have, but they were necessary to kind of, uh, get through some of the logistical and procedural stuff and then move on to the other stuff we wanted to do. And I think it's kind of the same way when you get a diagnosis, you have to do those hard, hear those hard things and have those hard conversations and make those hard choices. Mm -hmm. And then you just move forward and do it and you hope and you pray that it works, but you've got the, the other stuff taken care of to the point where that's not constantly on your mind. And we, we were very frank with the kids too. They didn't know every detail of every treatment, Yeah, but they knew that there was a chance I wouldn't make it. And, And the way Kev said it to them was, um, mom will probably, there's, they're pretty confident she would be here till I think you said Thanksgiving or Christmas. That's what they told us. After that, we just don't know, but this is what we're going to try. And we explained mm-hmm. about the kind of the moonshot approach to this. And it, that was, that was horrible. That conversation was the worst one out of all of them. I'm sure. Yeah. I, but I remember, I it was important. In one of our original meetings, you know, when we were discussing chemotherapy and what, you know, just sort of the overall plan of attack, I remember we had a conversation about how are you going to phrase it to your, uh, to your kids. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think I, I was trying to give you some advice, even though I have no idea what it's like to be in that exact situation, but I, you know, try how to, how to phrase it about, you know, the, the it's, you, did. you know, it's, you know, it's sort of like how you guys laid it out or how you said it just there, you know, how it's a, you know, that it's a, unfortunately it's an aggressive cancer type that historically doesn't have a high success rate. And, you know, we're going to treat it aggressively to try to give it our best chance. You know, and, and, you know, we're just going to take it a month at a time. But but we know that it could it could go badly. We know it could go badly soon within six months or something. You know, and so I think, you know, setting sort of realistic expectations, but still maintaining some, you know, window of hope is the way I try to do it. Just like I try to give to you uh, yeah. and, you know, try to encourage you to, to phrase it like that to your kids as well. And. So you sort of have the same experience that, that I have, you know, in my day to day, sort of turning that back around it to give that same sort of balance to your to your children when you're trying to describe it to them. So, you know, I guess hopefully just having you know, heard that or you know, modeling sort of after how I talked to you about it, I mean, hopefully that was helpful, I guess. Oh, it was super helpful because I didn't want to tell them anything that wasn't true. Yeah. Yeah that was the main thing. It's like, I wanted as awful as it was, I wanted them to have an honest expectation and a realistic expectation of what, what could happen. So. Yeah. And I think I I told you at the time that, you know, this is, you know, it's not unrealistic to tell them that there's a small hope and that, you know, that's, and uh, that, you know, you should tell them just the way that I'm telling you that it, it is the odds are against you and it is a bad cancer and many people don't survive this cancer, but there is a small hope and we're going to try our best for that hope. And that's, you know, I don't think that that is a lie to your children to tell them that. And because I'm not lying to you about how I'm telling you that. right now. So that's, I think what I, what I said, something like that to you, I'm probably paraphrasing myself a little bit, but that's. No, but it was very similar to that. And, and it was, yeah, it was straightforward. And, and it was what you told me 
And it was what we told them. And as things went along, them having that in their back pocket, knowing this may totally not work, but there's a chance. And so yeah. we're going to hope and pray for that chance and work as hard as we can to, to get yeah. that. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, you know, the more, you know, upfront and blunt you could be with someone, the more that you could, they can trust you when you do tell them that there is a small window of hope. And, and, you know, the, yeah. the way that you phrase that is very important and for me or for the way that you're telling your children the same way. Uh, and that's, you know, that's what I'm trying to strive for when I talk to people about it. And I think, you know, in general, I, I come across as pretty blunt because I, I tend to lead with the, you know, the bad news and, and sort of be pretty upfront about that. Uh, and so I think when, when I do talk about the more hopeful side of things, I think it, it's at least more believable and, uh, you know, probably the same way when, when you tell your children that too. Yeah. That's one thing I like about you is you don't, um, you don't sugarcoat anything, but you're also not depressing. And I don't know how you managed to pull that off, but you know, good on you. Cause that works. It's working. Yeah, for you. Yeah. No, I'm not sure, but that, thank you for that compliment. But, uh, that's, um, you know, I find that bluntness works the best. People just really want to know the truth and don't want things to be sugarcoated in this field. I mean, so I can't tell you how many times people have thanked me for telling them that they have an incurable cancer that I can do nothing for. You know, like wow. you know, people just thank you so much for telling them that so upfront. And, uh, you know, when I tell them, really, you shouldn't go through chemotherapy. I don't I think it's just going to, you know, pile on and it's not going to help you that much. And I really don't think it's for you. I don't think that we should do that. You know, I can't tell you that's almost never been met with no, you know, or like that's, you know, you're, 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 you know, you're a fraud. You don't know what you're doing. You know, that's almost always met with, thank you so much for just telling me that. Uh, so I, I don't know. I think that that's in by far and away the best way to go is just, just sort of really, really, uh, bluntness. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm a little optimist by nature. I guess that's part of the reason I went into oncology because you you have to sort of maintain some optimism, I guess, to, to be in this field and, and do it and, you know, try to, to try to find the cases like yours that have gone, gone real well so far. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, you keep motivating you, I guess. Well, and I think it, I think it takes, it takes a special kind of person to be able to do that and be resilient. I think delivering that kind of bad news and still maintain optimism. And, and I'll tell you, I always, I've told people this for years, I can deal with anything if I know what it is. I may not yeah. like it, but I'll figure out a way to deal with it. But if people, um, you know, kind of hedge or lie or whatever, and you don't know the truth of what's going on. How do you know what you're dealing with and how do you make a plan to move forward? Yeah. And that's a, you know, that, that, uh, that's a, that's a, a particularly difficult problem in, in, in my field of sarcoma. And the other one you deal with is that there, it is a field because of the rarity that, that comes with a, a, a certain degree of uncertainty. And so people really have a difficult time dealing with the uncertainty of it. You know, and even the uncertainty of sort of the, the medical recommendations, you know, the, you know, you, you know, whether or not to give chemotherapy or not for a case like yours is, you know, probably most people would, but even that is somewhat of a matter of debate. You know, there's some, you know, even experts that would say, you know, that it's probably not going to move the needle that much, you know, and some that would say you definitely have to try because it, it, it might help a little bit. And so, you know, even within our field, because it's so rare, it's hard, it's hard to have definitive answers like you do in some of the other cancer types where you test all these different permutations and, mm -hmm. you know, have, are able to do more, uh, you know, clinical testing and, and experience from it. And so there's, 
this uncertainty factor also. And also sometimes the diagnosis is hard to come up with. Like in your case, we still kind of go back and forth between these two different diagnoses sometimes. And some people are like, you know, what the heck, you know, what, you know, you can't even tell me what, what I have, <laughs> you know, yeah. what, you know, you're like this expert center. What, what's going on here? Like, the, you know, maybe I should go somewhere else. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's this extra uncertainty factor that makes it, I think, particularly challenging for these rare cancers that make it even more difficult where there is not, you know, we treated a thousand people this way and a thousand people the other way. And we know for sure that this way is 2% better, you know, that, you know, this is, you know, we just don't have that yeah, for yeah. a lot of the things we're dealing with. And, and so we have to talk in uncertainty sometimes and hedge a little bit sometimes. And when we're talking to people about our, our recommendations and, and, uh, you know, that's, that's a real challenge, I think, for, for a lot of people and for the, for the doctors too, frankly, to, to try to deal with that degree of uncertainty. Well, and I, I think, um, I'm okay with it being your best guess. Yeah. And that's a, that's what you have to kind of come to, especially with the rarer ones. Um, and I always say things to you, like, if it was your sister, if it was your wife, if it was your mom and you liked these people, what would you, what would you do? And I, and I'm okay with, I'm okay with knowing that's your best guess for someone you care about, someone you love. This is what you would recommend given the same circumstances. And it's a guess and that's okay. Yeah, no. And I think that's, that's sometimes how I phrase it, you know, is that, you know, I've learned over the years to, to phrase it like, Hey, you know, this is, it's not definitive because it's rare. And, you know, you could go to three different sarcoma experts around the country and one of them could tell you no chemotherapy. One could tell you definitely chemotherapy. And one could be like me. It's like, I think probably chemotherapy. Uh, you know, like some, I'm, I tend to be more, a little bit more in between, I guess, or more flexible than some that are a little more dogmatic. Um, but, um, you know, that there is, you know, that definitely happens in, uh, in, in this field. And, and you, you do have to kind of phrase it as, as your best guess sometimes, you know, from your experience and, and be sort of, you know, again, blunt about that to some degree. And I think, you know, as long as you can, you know, if you're comfortable with living in that uncertainty i think the, the patient you're talking to gets more comfortable living in that uncertainty uh yeah. and so that's you know you have to sort of you know embrace that to some degree uh you know i think to to, to, to be the most effective um and so yeah that's that's one thing and i don't know i mean the, i agree with you that is a, it is a challenge and it is draining and you know it's part of the reason i do research and part of the reason i split my time you know to be quite mm. honest with you i think it would be challenging to do this job every day for you know seeing patients five days a week and doing this delivering this news five days a week and that um, maintaining that optimism and, and um, you know that and, and the energy for that it's it is it is a more draining day when I when I see patients that day than you know I come home ready for like a recharge you know when I'm spending the day in the lab the the following day or the day before it's a little little different drain on your psyche you know a little different uh, you know amount that it pulls from you and you know I, I enjoy that but it also is draining you know and, and it's a it's sort of one of these things that like you want enough of that you can take but not too much yeah. Uh, you know, and just, you know, so I guess thankfully I've been able to, to carve out the, the amount that's right for me. Um, but I do think a lot of people go into to oncology because they, they, to some degree, want to deal with that level of difficulty on an emotional level um, and, you know, want to feel like they're doing dealing with something important and, and uh, you know, challenging um, and, you know, want to get moved to a, a certain degree of emotions. You know, it's the same reason people want to go to see a sad movie or, or want to go to, um, uh, I don't know. I don't know that just people find it, you know, it's important to, 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 to do these things. And I think that, you know, a lot of us are, um, you know, appreciate that aspect of the job. I certainly do, you know, and it's, it's, it's a really rewarding part of it. Well, you're definitely doing work that matters. It matters hugely to me. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to do it while you're here, but I do sing your praises. <laughs> you and Dr. Nagavi, particularly just the two of you and the way you guys work together and the, the, the difference it has literally made in my life. So thank you. You're very welcome. Um, okay. You've made me cry. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, so now a couple of, to do, I don't think. what'd you say? I'm not sure that was too difficult to do to make you cry. I'm not sure. Okay. Hey, it's true. <laughs> Let's not get it all out there. It's totally true though. Um, I kind of wear my heart on my sleeve. So a no, uh, couple more quick questions. Number one, what has, so your life's work, what has it taught you about people or about life in general? Like if you had to sum it up in a couple of little quick sound bites. Gosh, I mean, I mean, one thing you learn very quickly is that life is just so fragile. Health is so fragile. You know, anybody that's going through anything like you, you have, you know, finds it out right away. And I, you know, I certainly see that secondhand. Um, you know, it's something we take for granted so easily and it's so, it just can go so quickly. Um, and that, and that's, that's obviously the number one in your face lesson, I think. Um, but, you know, I think that it, it does make you feel like there is um, a meaning to, to life uh, and a meaning, you know, people, you know, their, their lives and their time are just so meaningful and it, it gets in some ways exaggerated when they're, when they're faced with their mortality. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm sure that's something that you've experienced and it's, yeah. Um, it's something that's hammered home every single time you see somebody dealing with a difficult uh, disease like cancer uh, or like a sarcoma, especially. Um, and so that's, uh, I think that's, that's my little soundbite lesson. It's, 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 uh, you know, life is meaningful and it's worth fighting for and it's, uh, but also it's fragile and it's, it's temporary. I have, those are really good sound bites, by the way. Um, okay. So first of all, thank you. Second of all, a couple of things about you, like, do you have a couple of things on your bucket list item, that, like of bucket list items that you'd be willing to share? Like places you want to go, things you want to do besides curing cancer. We know that, but anyway, man, curing cancer has got to be number one on my list, but I'd, I'm still working on that. But, uh, no, I mean, I, gosh, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm mostly, I'm, you know, focused on work. I'm focused on family. I have a couple of small boys and, you know, my most important things are, are just, you know, are those two things, you know, seeing, seeing my family grow and, and, uh, prosper and, uh, you know, trying to, trying to guide them to grow up well and, you know, carry on, I guess. And, uh, you know, I, I do travel a bit and, and so been able to do a lot of bucket lists, you know, thankfully I'm very blessed in that way. Um, so I don't have like one necessarily specific one. It's just these more general things. No, those are good though. And then that probably wraps into your, the last thing I was going to ask you, what's your favorite place or what are your favorite places to be? If you had to pick one or two. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, uh, you know, one of my well, places that's near and dear to me is, uh, is, uh, uh, Dubrovnik, Croatia this is where my wife is from and we got married there. Oh, cool. Uh, and, uh, so we, uh, you know, we do travel back there almost every summer, uh, though it's been a little, uh, pushed back with the pandemic. We are going to try to go later this summer. Uh, and, uh, you know, let the boys see their heritage, I guess. And it's a beautiful place that, uh, you know, it's like a tour, uh, you know, a cruise ship stop there with tourists and stuff like that. So it's a real nice, real nice area. And that's, uh, you know, that's, that's places real special to me now through, uh, by marriage, I guess. 
That's really, it's so funny because Kevin and I were looking at um, Croatia because it's not in the Schengen country. So you can live in Croatia longer than you can Mm -hmm. in like Italy. Mm-hmm. So we actually were looking at that and some houses there and thought, man, that would be really nice. It's lovely. Uh, it's a beautiful place. I'd highly recommend it. Very cool. Um, well, first of all, I want to thank you for your time today and for putting up with the audio issues. Because No, no problem. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, and secondly, I want to thank you for me. So yeah. just thanks. And yes, it's not hard to make me cry, but no. um, without yeah. you... Well, without you guys and your help, I don't think I would be here today. And, you know, I know things can always get bad again, blah, 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 whatever. But I'm living a pretty good life and I've been healthy. And that's yeah, that's pretty amazing to me. So thank you for that. No, you're so, so welcome. And it's just so, so great. We love this and we love how well you're doing. And so happy that I didn't uh, overpromise and underdeliver. You know, I think uh, we... Uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Thankfully, went the other route and underpromised and over. I don't know. It's much better to be in that way, I guess. So, uh, so gosh, absolutely. It's, it's great being here talking with you, and and um, yeah, it's great being here talking with you. As you can tell by our conversation, Doctor Brol is just good people. He's dedicated to his work. He's dedicated to his patients, and he's just an all-around great guy. He's also an example of the kind of people they have working at Moffitt Cancer Center. And I would highly recommend it if you ever need a specialist who can help you with something that maybe your regular oncologist can't. This week, as you go around the world, please count your blessings. Look for the good in others and in yourself. Do something nice for somebody else that makes their day a little easier and make it a great week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.